Hey, everybody. It's been wild to see how this series has unfolded in terms of topic and theme. To start with how to create aliens and alien cultures with Becky Chambers in the debut episode, which also becomes a conversation about gender and sexuality and the soft versus the hard sciences and science fiction, and then to move to a conversation that is more attending to the line and the sentence and the meanings below and beyond the semantic meanings of words with Molly Gloss, with that conversation also about workshops and peer groups, receiving feedback and growing from it. And then the last two extremely different conversations, yet two conversations I still consider together. Isaac Yuan talking about nature writing and questions about the depiction of the human and non-human within story. And Karen Joy Fowler looking at both science and story in relationship to the non-human other and the ways emotions, women, and animals have all been denigrated in ways within science that affect our ability to see the world and to imagine it. Today's conversation with Adrienne Marie Brown and the one that will come after it, I also consider very different, but also nevertheless connected, connected around questions of imagination in relation to social justice and political change. I wasn't sure whether to call this conversation with Adrian social justice and science fiction, social justice as science fiction, or social justice is science fiction. But I think you'll discover, after hearing Adrian talk, that it could have equally been called any of these things. There have been many science fiction and fantasy guests who've been on between the covers who are doing the work of social justice visioning from N.K. Jemison to Nedia Korafor to Sophia Samatar to Jeff Vandermeer to Ursula K. Le Guin herself. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, besides checking out the four Crafting with Ursula episodes before this one, you can also go to tinhouse.com slash podcasts and sort the archive for science fiction and fantasy and foreground these conversations in particular. There are also a ton of Ursula-related enticements on the show's Patreon page if you are a listener who hasn't yet become a listener supporter. From rare out-of-print collectibles to Ursula K. Le Guin conversations on writing to the Le Guin Tribute Anthology, Dispatches from Anaris, where Portland writers from Fonda Lee and Lydia Yuknovich to Molly Gloss and Renee Denfeld write stories in homage to Le Guin. You can find out about all of this and much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's Crafting with Ursula with Adrian Marie Brown. The connection between what I do as a writer, make, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells, and that magic in Earthsea is word magic. I mean, obviously, to me, words do make magic, in a sense. They make something new or different. 
What I'm after ultimately is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as, as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Today's guest, writer and visionary Adrian Marie Brown, is and has been many things, from a doula to a columnist on pleasure, justice, feminism, race, and pop culture for Bitch Magazine, to a social justice facilitator. Her social justice work is extensive, working with the Harm Reduction Coalition as executive director of the Ruka Society and co-founder and director of the League of Young Pissed-Off Voters. And she's the author of many books, including Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, We Will Not Cancel Us, and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice, and Holding Change, The Way of Emergent Strategy, Facilitation, and Mediation, as well as co-editing How to Get Stupid White Men Out of Office. Emergent Strategy, both the book and the practice, looks to science, to emergent patterns in the non-human plant and animal worlds as models for adaptation and inspiration, and also to science fiction, particularly the philosophy of change in the works of Octavia Butler. Along with Alexis Pauling Gums, Brown published the Octavia Butler Strategic Reader. She has run a series of Octavia Butler-based science fiction writing workshops, and she collaborated with Walida Imarisha and Sherry Renee Thomas on the anthology Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements, which contains writings from everyone from LeVar Burton to Mumia Abu-Jamal. Adrian Marie Brown is also a podcaster, co-host of Octavia's Parables, a deep dive into Butler's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, as well as the co-host of the podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. As if that were not enough, Adrienne is also a writer of science fiction herself. She attended the Clarion Sci-Fi Writers' Workshop and Voices of Our Nation in the inaugural cohort for their Speculative Fiction Workshop, and she was the 2015 Ursula K. Le Guin Feminist Science Fiction Fellow at the University of Oregon's Special Collections Library and Archives, which houses the papers of key feminist science fiction authors, including Joanna Russ, Molly Gloss, James Tiptree Jr., and Ursula K. Le Guin herself. Brown's fiction debut, Grievers, out in the fall of last year from AK Press, is described as follows by Publishers Weekly in its starred review. The first novel in AK Press's new Black Dawn series, which will focus on speculative fiction, that expresses the values of anti-racism, feminism, anti-colonialism, and anti-capitalism, hits the nail on the head with its deep, moving exploration of loss, family, community, gentrification, and rapidly changing urban landscapes. 
a strong precedent that will leave readers eager for more. And Ayana Jameson adds, Grievers is the right book for right now. Adrian inspires us to be present as we try and put ourselves back together, no matter how broken the world seems. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Adrian Marie Brown. Wow, thank you so much for that intro, David. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, well, before we talk about social justice and science fiction, talk to us about Ursula Le Guin, when and how you first encountered her work, and then also the ways her life has in- intersected with your life. I deeply love Ursula K. Le Guin's work, and I believe that the first text of hers um, that I came across was actually called The Compass Rose. Um, a friend of mine had like a battered copy of it and was carrying it around and was like, oh my God, there's a play Le Guin. And then someone put the dispossessed in my hands and it was like, you have to read this. You've got a lot of like anarchist thought processes happening in your head. And I read it and I was blown away. This was, um, I think it was right after college, coming out of college. And was just like, oh, you can write like this. You can write it all. You know, you can really juxtapose societies in this way. And it was really exciting to read. And that's the text of hers that I've continued to come back to. Um, And then found the ones who walk away from Omelas. I found um, so many of her, you know, I then the left hand of darkness, you know, like I just started, I moved into the whole heinous realm with her and, we got really inspired by that idea that you could keep writing things in a world that didn't necessarily have to be a coherent structured or timeline or anything that was just like, there's just more in this world. You know, there's just this sense of um, I'm not building a world necessarily. I'm unveiling it more and more with each story, but it's like, it's there. So it's just over there, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really liked that quality to her work. And so I just kept reading, kept reading and then I um, got the fortune, you know, I applied for the, this um, writing workshop, the Bona writing workshop. I went to that and then I went to Clarion. And um, while I was in Clarion, I came across all these different teachers who were just like, you know, we see that you have this deep love of Octavia Butler's work, but you really have a, a, an alignment, like a more creative alignment with a lot of what Ursula Le Guin is doing. And, you know, do you know that, (laughs) you know, are you aware of that? And that ended up leading to me getting selected as the Ursula Le Guin uh, Feminist Sci-Fi Scholar in 2016. And um, I got to go, they had this gathering for her, just a complete, it was the James Tiptree Symposium, and it was just completely focused on Ursula Le Guin's work. And she came. And so I got to sit down, meet, meet her, sit down and talk with her for a little bit, um, take pictures of her, you know, and I had written her letters, um, you know, sort of not quite asking for mentorship, but just wanting to engage, um, especially because I, I knew that she was a pretty prolific letter writer and mm-hmm. over many years had done that. And she was really kind and, you know, responded like, I, I'm not really taking on new mentees right now but I really am interested in, you know, I see what you're up to. I find it interesting. Keep going, you know, that kind of blessed, blessed energy. And, um, and I'm really lucky that I met her when I did, because it was, you know, she passed away uh, shortly after that. And 
it was just a, a huge blessing to have made that connection in my lifetime. And the Ursula Le Guin, the, the fellowship, when I was at the, in her papers and just like immersed in all of this work that she had done, I started to get very inspired by all the multimedia ways that she created. So she was a visual artist. She wrote songs, she wrote poetry, she wrote short stories, she wrote letters to the editor that were very angry. She wrote letters to the editor that were very, you know, uplifting and supportive of her community. And she wrote these novels and essays on the craft of writing. And it's just like so many ways of writing. And so I actually have been working on something for years that is a little Ursula Le Guin sci-fi reader, social justice and sci-fi reader. Wow. And every time I'm at the edge of putting it out in the world, some other massive world thing happens but basically now it's completed it's all designed and laid out and at some point hopefully this year it's going to be released um and then i also got to be there was a, a documentary made about her work that i got to be a part of so it feels like there's a beautiful weaving and in that reader i actually pulled together some of the ways like unlikely alliances between our thinking and our work and our lives um, you know, there's clear differences, you know, she was a white woman in Oregon who was, you know, married, raising children and writing. Um, I'm a black queer witch who's just out here kind of like <laughs> constantly transforming what relationships look like or whatever. But there's a, a root system of, of real overlaps that I find really interesting, especially in the ideas. And um, I hope that I'm one of the people who gets to keep carrying her legacy forward. Yeah. Well, I want to explore some of the ways your root systems are in communication with each other. So mm -hmm. one of the ways I thought about beginning was um, when LeVar Burton was in Portland uh -huh. to tape a live episode of his show, um, he chose to read a story by Le Guin. Um, and after he read it, he was joined on stage by your co-editor of Octavia's Brood, Walida Imarisha, mm -hmm. to talk about Le Guin. And Walida said many things that, that rang true to me that for her, Le Guin's legacy was an uncompromising and defiant commitment to radical dreaming, but also that her radical dreaming was into a lived reality. It was about how to be our best flawed selves. Mm. And finally, she said that Le Guin's work both centered the marginal and was from the ground up, two things that make me think of your work as well. And your work both in, in writing and your your work in the world. Um, but she also said something else, um, that all organizing is science fiction, something you also say in your work. So yeah. I, I think this would be a great place to start. What do you and Walida mean by this, that all organizing is science fiction? You know, there's a way that science fiction is basically just saying like, let's look at what is in the world right now, like how things actually work. That's the science aspects of it. And then predict or parallel or play with what would happen if one aspect of that changed, what would happen, you know, that's the sort of guy, if this goes on or what if this happened or, you know, what is the inevitable conclusion, right? If this, or what is the parallel of this? And so that's what science fiction is up to. And what we, we realized, both of us having an organizing background, it's like, we're like, why are we so obsessed with these sci-fi writers? Like, why is this the text that really most resonates with us? And it was like, we're up to the same things. If you talk to organizers, organizers are fundamentally looking at what is. This is reality right now. And, and 
we need to change something about it because if this goes on, you know, right now we're in a period where it's like, if this goes on, we're going to be extinct. (laughs) If this goes on, earth will be okay. She seems to have a really good, um, you know, restorative process so far and many powerful empires and many powerful species have gone, come and gone and we could do the same thing. But there's a moment we're in a real crisis, acute moment where we could make some very key different decisions that would elongate our possibility as a species on this planet. So organizers look at stuff like that, right? And we're just like, okay, there's actually a science to our survival. There's a science to how communities function with each other. And then we vision from that place, right? So we're shaping the future. We're trying to have an impact on the future. We're trying to articulate a different future. And as we were working on Octavia's brood, we said, you know, organizers work without ever having necessarily experienced the vision that we're moving towards. Um, it's fictional, right? It's like, we're writing a story, we're telling, we're, we're crafting a narrative of a different possibility than we've experienced. And we used to say that none of us have experienced a world without homelessness, a world without hunger, a world without war, that, that has not happened for any human whether you know about it or don't know about it, whether you're impacted or not, that's a different thing. But we all live in the world. And in that ties into Omelis as well. It's like, we're all in the world and we're all so far working within the compromises that the world requires, right? Like if you are a person of privilege, there's a certain compromise you're fundamentally making if you're not constantly redistributing everything you have to all the people around you without. So science fictional behavior is what we wanted to invite people into. It's like, how do you start to vision that future and put it directly in relationship to the world that we're living in now? Mm-hmm. And that's what Octavia Butler was doing. That's what Ursula Quinn was doing is being like, I see something else. And when I put it next to the world as it is now, as a reader, you have to now contend with the possibility that, well, that, that could exist. We could have four-way marriages. We could have an anarchist moon. We could have, right? Like that could exist because it's been imagined now. And so once things have been imagined, we have a choice point. It's like, we live in a world with someone imagined. Someone imagined white supremacy. It's not a real thing, right? There's no actual science that backs that supremacy, but someone imagined it and they bent the world to make that functional. Someone imagined you know, the men were superior. Someone imagined manifest destiny, right? We live in the world shaped by that imagining. And part of the invitation of all organizing is science fiction is we have to imagine futures that are other than this, futures that are just. Yeah. Well, this reminds me also, I think you share this insistence with Ursula that the imagination is very real, that quote unquote realism a world without the imagination is very unrealistic, actually. Yes. But not only that the imagination is integral to us as humans in a very real and tangible way, but that the imagination has tangible effects. So, for instance, you say in Emergent Strategy, we are in an imagination battle. Imagination turns brown bombers into terrorists and white bombers into mentally ill victims. Imagination gives us borders, gives us superiority, gives us race as an indicator of capability. I often feel I am trapped inside someone else's imagination, and I must engage my own imagination in order to break free. And that last line makes me think of the 
the much quoted line from Claudia Rankin's uh, Citizen, because white men can't police their imagination, black people are dying. Yes. And I also think of the flip side of this when Walida says about you and her, as two black women sci-fi scholars, we know that we are living science fiction. We are the dreams of enslaved black folks who were told it was unrealistic to imagine a day when they were not called property. Those black people refused to confine their dreams to realism, and instead they dreamed us up. Then they bent reality, reshaped the world to create us. And to bring this around to Le Guin, who said, we will not know our own injustice if we cannot imagine justice. We will not be free if we do not imagine freedom. We cannot demand that anyone try to attain justice and freedom who has not had the chance to imagine them as attainable all of which I think we could connect to Octavia Butler from her unfinished, <laughs> just to bring it all around to her. Unfinished, yeah, I love this. I'm like, go on. <laughs> from her unfinished parable of the trickster, where she says, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. So this all sounds great and compelling, but I think, I think one thing all of these things seem to share and demand from us is to do the work of imagination, or as you suggest, if we don't do the work of imagination, we will be trapped in someone else's imagined world. Exactly. And I just wondered if hearing all of this um, together, <laughs> if that sparks any, any further thoughts for you around it. One thing I always want to name is my friend Terry Marshall is the first person who ever said that piece around the imagination battle, and it blew my mind and it tied all these things together right but i was like this is what we're talking about is that what what we imagine is what becomes you know everything every structure architects know this you know builders know this those who think about planning a community and neighborhood know this it's like you have to see something and then you recreate it like that's that's how humans are structured right we vision and if we don't take it seriously you know which i think it's actually quite easy for that to happen, but folks think, oh, I can control those who don't imagine, right? Like if I can keep people too busy to imagine that a lot of how slavery and systems of enslavement, systems of, of overpowering oppression, even the, our current incarceral system, our carceral system, um, part of how they work is making it where there's no real room for imagination. They're not trying to hone and, and give space for that because imagination is our path to freedom. Mm. Imagination is one of the ways that we're able to see beyond our current circumstances. And if we don't take it seriously, we can all of a sudden become caught in these loops of labor and resentment and death, labor, resentment and sickness, labor, resentment, and feeling purposeless, feeling like depressed, feeling self-negating, right? That it's like, why be here? You know, and you can see the difference in children when they're given room to imagine, given space to imagine how quickly they're building whole worlds, how easily they move into relationship with others who also want to imagine. When you watch, you know, I had the blessing, my uh, nibblings had uh, Montessori schools for a period of their lives and getting to what I never had that experience. I had some good teachers and bad teachers, but I was in an educational journey that was like, knowledge already exists. You are an empty mind. We're going to fill your brain with this amount of math, this amount of grammar, this amount, you know, like rules 
for how to think that'll make you fit well as a cog into this wheel of capitalist system, right? But getting to watch that Montessori learning experience where no one was pushing or guiding them towards anything, their imaginations and their curiosity took the center and they could play alone, they could play together, they could work, they could craft. And I was like, oh, our human nature wants to imagine. And from that imagining, our purpose actually emerges, right? Mm -hmm. And I see this over and over again, and I do this work with people as a coach, I've done this with groups, that when you just give people a little room to, well, what could it be, right? Given what is going on in the world and what your skills are and your passions and everything, what could it be? What could the world look like? And what could your role in it look like? That's very delicious, actually, for most humans to be like, I could have a purpose. This thing that I love doesn't necessarily need to be relegated to the hobby of my life. It might be the reason I'm here and what I have to contribute. So all of that is part of freedom to me. When I think about when I imagine the future, I mostly don't see like, you know, flying cars and we're off in space or whatever. I mostly just imagine people feel free to fully live into their purpose. They have the freedom to imagine what the world could be. I think if each of us is actually given anything, the spark of life that we're given is actually a piece of our collective imagination, right? There's something that like I can see that maybe you can't and something you can see that maybe I can't. And then when we start to dream together, talk together, we can figure out like, oh, okay. Like you and I are both podcasters, right? There's something in our imagination. that's like, I dream about people being in conversation in a certain way that I think will be of use to the world, right? And so we imagined podcasts for ourselves and then we created them, you yeah. know? Um, so I say that because I'm like, even the small imagination, even the smallest things, the things are just like, I don't, it's a small idea I have. is so important to home, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, wherever it starts, it's been crushed. So wherever you start to reclaim it and be like, wait, no, I, I do have an idea different from what everyone is telling me is my path. Mm-hmm. There's a collective liberation that comes each time we claim each of us individually claims those those pathways and when walid and i were working octavia's brew like touring it sharing it with the world we did all these collective imagination workshops and we had people sit and say what imagination what medicine of radical imagination does your community need Mm. and we that was one of the most thrilling periods of my life in terms of getting the reminder that humans actually really have beautiful ideas for how to be with each other and what to structure and build together. If we're not constantly in a reactive state to the attacks that are coming from those who are supposed to protect us and the, you know, from our our, the dysfunctional economic system we're in and stuff like that, people are like, come up with very beautiful collaborative ideas very quickly. So one of the things I hope to, I think that all the people that you named, I think we're all in the lineage of inviting people into that collaborative ideation of the future, right? It's like our liberation is actually tied into the strength of that imagination muscle. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to, I want to take all of this into one of Le Guin's works. So to, to bring us to the um, talk that you gave that you've already Reference the 2016 Tiptree Symposium on Ursula K. Le Guin. 
um, you were on a panel and you gave talks alongside the Anishinaabe scholar and writer Grace Dillon, the yeah. um, scholar who coined the term indigenous futurisms and edited the indigenous science fiction anthology Walking the Clouds. Um, yeah. Your talk was called Ursula K. Le Guin's Fiction as Inspiration for Activism. And in it, you say that her novel, The Dispossessed, is a foundational text for people doing social justice work, and that it is a book that explores the questions, quote, what does it really take to commit yourself to complete freedom? And then what are the new problems that arise out of a commitment to complete freedom? You say, Le Guin does this always, no easy answers. Here is a new situation, proposition, and some new problems. For instance, here is a scheduled time to go have a bunch of group sex in a bathhouse. Awesome. Great, <laughs> great job, Ursula. But then there's the problem <laughs> but then there's the problems that would emerge from that. And this seem this seems key to me, um, and a connective tissue between you and her. This two-tiered set of questions that not only don't produce simple answers, but more questions and more problems from pursuing the first questions that when the anarchists are left alone on Anaris to build their own society, these ideas, which seem so great when disembodied now have to be enacted in an embodied way. And how do we do that? So I was hoping maybe we could talk about Chevik in the dispossessed in light of this and in light of your work. I, I think of how you, you call science fiction an exploring ground, a place to try out tactics and strategies and visions, and that perhaps through what Chevik does, Le Guin is, is saying, as you do, that it's not enough to have the quote-unquote right idea and then impose it on others, but that we have to figure out how to transform ourselves for that world. Um, finally, you say in this speech, we are great at coming up with the ideas for how everyone else needs to change, what society, <laughs> what society needs to do, how everyone else is a mess, flawed, failing. We love to tell people about themselves, invite them to be told. But what does it mean when we have to be the one whose practices have to shift in order to actually even begin to reach for the justice we want? So can you bring us into the dispossessed a little bit and maybe some of what Shevik is confronted with there in light yeah. of in light of what you were talking about in 2016? Yeah, so... I really identify with Shevik as a as a character and not because I am a scientist. I, you know, I always let people know like I'm not a scientist. I I, I struggle <laughs> to follow the lingo even. But the place where I have identified is Shevik is um a scientist who's based on this anarchist moon world that is orbiting uh the planet that their their lineage comes from, um, which is called so they're on Anaris and the planet that they're orbiting is Eurus. And so Shevik has this idea and in the anarchist world that he lives in, you don't get to just be like, oh, I'm passionate about science and that's just what I do all the time. It's like everyone actually works in the, what they call these syndicates, but you're given different labor to do at different periods of time. And you never quite know when that labor work is going to shift because it's based on the needs of the overall society. So you might be working as a janitor one week and then the next week you go and you're doing some experimentation. And the next week you're going, you're 
helping distribute food or whatever else, right? It's your call. And so the problem that Shevik runs into is like, he's the scientist who's got like an idea that is so massive, it could change how the whole species everywhere in the universe understands relationship and possibility. And it's a beautiful idea. The idea is, it's called general temporal theory in the book. And it's the creation of something called the Ansible, which is an instant communication device that no matter the distance apart you are, you can instantly be in communication. And, you know, we don't have anything like that right now, right? You know, like it's, it's incredible, right? So he has this idea. And when we meet Shevik, he's actually just about to leave Anaris. And there's protesters about the fact that he's leaving Anaris because he's going to go back to this other planet near us that has the resources to support his research. And it's very controversial that he's doing this. And then he goes to this other planet. They fet him. They celebrate him. And he basically gets the equivalent of like a hotel room and like a wardrobe and a, there's a ball, you know, there's all these things that are celebrating him. And for a while he's, he's moving along in that path. And then it sort of starts to click for him. Like, wait, <laughs> I'm getting the cream of the crop of this sort of capitalist utopian realm. And, you know, cracks in the cracks start to show. And then people start to actually reach out, you know, organizers start to really reach out through those cracks to be like, there's a, another whole situation actually happening out here, don't give your ideas to these people. They use them for oppression. Like you will, it will not go well. And he starts to see the underbelly. He starts to see the oppression. He starts to recognize um, what he's actually been pulled into. And all throughout that, you know, Ursula's telling this brilliant story parallel to giving us flashbacks of what his life has been like back on his anarchist moon planet of Anaris. So we get to see what love looks like, what family has looked like, um, what it looks like to fall in love in a, in a world where the norm is not ownership. So you can have a companion that you move with, but you don't expect to be in ownership over them or that the two of you will own a space together. You don't own your child. Right? You have children and they go into a collective space of being held and you can love them, care for them. But all of those words, every single aspect of a relationship changes completely when ownership is taken out of it. And so we're getting these juxtapositions. And finally, where, where Ursula lands us is him deciding to reject the Society of Eurus fully to return to Anaris and to basically do a direct action of releasing his idea outside of, you know, to everyone. It's sort of like everyone can access this idea. And there's a key um, idea inside of it, which the founder of Anaris Odin has, has spoken and other people mention it, true journey is return. And, and it's like, for much of the book, I don't know if you had this experience, but for much of the book, you think, oh, it's the return to Eurus. You know, it's like, they've gone off on this moon experiment and now somehow they're going to come back and influence this planet. But the beautiful trick of it is actually true journeys. It's like the return is to your values mm -hmm. and to the value of freedom is to not be possessed and not be in possession of others. That's the freedom. So it's, I think one of the most, it's like very didactic. It's very like you are going to learn today <laughs> in terms of this writing. Like she has many books that are much more poetic and mysterious and subtle with their politic. This one is very like, here's what it is. I think that works really well for the story. I think there's so much to learn from the story. And 
Um, and like I said, I, as someone who I'm often struggling to figure out, like, how can I be a part of the group, the collective, all the people, while also being a very special person who's always doing special, you know, like, I'm like, I don't know, I just want to be special. I want to do it differently. I want to do it my way. I want, you know, a little bit of spark, you know, I've got this idea or whatever. I really feel that beautiful tension of the character of Shevik of like, how do you live in a society where nobody is special and everybody is special mm-hmm. when you've got something special to bring into the world? Yeah. And you, you have a short passage you were going to read. Is this a good time? Yeah, let's do it. I have, um, so I want people to know that like the dispossessed is such a brilliant book and I could read forever <laughs> from it. But I, I found a few sections that I'm, um, if it's okay, that there's a few of them. Great. Maybe it's like a few minutes of reading. That's perfect. So fundamentally, like the, this, there's a chunk of this that is just like, here's the fundamental structure and belief system of Inaris. So we have nothing but our freedom. We have nothing to give you but your own freedom. We have no law but the single principle of mutual aid between individuals. We have no government but the single principle of free association. We have no states, no nations, no presidents, no premiers, no chiefs, no generals, no bosses, no bankers, no landlords, no wages, no charity, no police, no soldiers, no wars, nor do we have much else. We are sharers, not owners. We are not prosperous. None of us is rich. None of us is powerful. If it is Anaris you want, if it is the future you seek, then I tell you that you must come to it with empty hands. You must come to it naked as the child comes into the world, into his future, without any past, without any property, wholly dependent on other people for his life. You cannot take what you have not given, and you must give yourself. You cannot buy the revolution. You cannot make the revolution. You can only be the revolution. It is in your spirit or it is nowhere. And then there's this quote about children that I, I want to tie in. So a child free from the guilt of ownership and the burden of economic competition will grow up with the will to do what needs doing and the capacity for joy in doing it. It is useless work that darkens the heart. The delight of the nursing mother, of the scholar, of the successful hunter, of the good cook, of the skillful, make, skillful maker, of anyone doing needed work and doing it well, this durable joy is perhaps the de- deepest source of human affection and of society, of sociality as a whole. Um, and then here, this piece that I love. So, and I speak of spiritual suffering of people seeing their talent. This feels, I want to read this part because it feels so relevant to what I see as like our current condition, okay? So, and I speak of spiritual suffering, of people seeing their talent, their work, their lives wasted, of good minds submitting to stupid ones, of strength and courage strangled by envy, greed for power, fear of change. Change is freedom. Change is life. It's always easier not to think for oneself. Find a nice, safe hierarchy and settle in. Don't make changes. Don't risk disapproval. Don't upset your syndics. It's always easiest to let yourself be governed. There's a point 
around age 20, when you have to choose whether to be like everybody else the rest of your life or to make a virtue of your peculiarities. Mm. Those who build walls are their own prisoners. I'm going to fulfill my proper function in the social organism. I'm going to unbuild walls. Oh, I just, every time I read those things, you know, I'm just sort of like, this is what I'm talking about. And, you know, there's one other line, which is if you evade suffering, you also evade the chance of joy. Pleasure you may get or pleasures, but you will not be fulfilled. You'll not know what it is to come home. And I'm like, it feels like a a spell that Ursula Gwynn is casting for us with this. It's so clear. I I do. I get them every time I read the book. And it's one that I always recommend to people, especially when people want to talk about a different economy, a new economy. And they're like, so close to any idea of anarchism, so close to any idea of socialism. And I'm like, it's because the lens that you have been given to look at it through is a capitalist lens that makes certain assumptions about prosperity and constantly growing. But when you read this text, I think she makes it so clear that if our value was to be together, if our value was to be a part of a functional society, if that was the starting place, and our value is liberation, then this actually becomes such a compelling path. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that's a hard (laughs) thing to follow up with. That's so great. Um, (laughs) Yeah. When I mentioned to Karen Joy Fowler, when, when she was on the show, um, that you and I were going to talk her, her face lit up and and she also mentioned that he lights my face up too. <laughs> I'm like I love her. Yeah, she mentioned that you studied with her at Clarion f- for one, but she was also in the audience of the talk that you gave um, in 2016 that I quoted to you from, and she asked a question about the movement uh, from theory to practice. For instance, the theory of Marxism versus the actual revolutions that were carried out in its name that don't look anything like what you might hope from, from the theory, um, or even more pragmatic and incremental and less revolutionary things like increasing the number of women who vote. And that also, and that approach also not feeling like it's changing the world the way one might hope. If we, if we think about the way, um, particularly white women, but women have voted, um, (laughs) and, and, and (laughs) and in your speech, and you, in your speech, asked the question that that the dispossessed asks asks also, how do you bring a beautiful idea into the fold of community to advance it, where Shevik doesn't know how to do this himself, but experiments in various ways, having many conversations before he could figure out his way forward. And I remember in a different talk you gave you you mentioning that for many years you were a tax resistor. But because you hadn't grounded this idea in community, because you had not developed a community support and a community response, uh, um, because it wasn't perhaps part of a collective action, um, it ultimately wasn't something that was affecting change. And it's instead something um, that you're paying the individual costs for now, um, (laughs) if I'm saying this right. Um, But Mm -hmm. but I want to take this notion from your talk on the dispossessed, where you talk about how we need to shift from telling everyone how to live to folding our own visions back into the collective and the importance of being able to turn the mirror on ourselves as a central part of doing the work. Because I'm thinking about 
your emergent strategy work based on fractals and fractal responsibility and on the idea of small is all. Um, Most of the writing I was asked to do about Le Guin after she died focused on this sort of notion because most of what we talked about when we did talk for the for the show were were things that were marginal to her public reputation we were talking about um things that she was doing quietly and not receiving attention for in all of our conversations so when i was asked to speak about her um i was wondering all the time what do these quiet small things she does outside the spotlight how do these things relate to the sort of fireball glorious things that we all know her for? Um, And I use the idea of the holographic film as one way to understand these two things that you can take a small piece of holographic film, say of a chessboard, and no matter what piece you cut from the whole, if you shine a laser through that piece, it recreates the whole image. Um, And I feel like, I don't know if, if you feel this way, but it feels like this idea of fractals and fractal responsibility is a kindred idea, one that yeah. re, one re, that relates to the line in The Dispossessed, to be whole is to be part, true voyage is return. Um, so talk, talk to us about fractals, what they are, and, and then by extension, fractal responsibility. I do feel like this is one of the biggest echoes in our work, and it also feels like one of the biggest echoes, like one of the things I want to bring in of Bracely Boggs. Bracely Boggs was one of my political teachers, mentors. And, um, you know, she said, we must transform ourselves to transform the world. And I feel like in that nugget, you know, it's like all, we can see it all, right? That for the longest time, the way I oriented towards creating social change in the world was pointing out how other humans were behaving badly um, with some belief that like attention plus shame plus having better values and more information would make people change. And I, I thought I was doing that really well and it wasn't working. And then I was like, okay, well then I'll do self-sacrifice and I'll go off and, you know, this, the war tax resistor move for me, it, I thought it was really selfless at first. You know, I was like, I'm doing this thing. And what it ended up being was like self-righteousness, right? Um, And it was very much about me feeling good myself. So every year when tax time came around and I was like, I am not participating in the system. It didn't, it didn't make matter. I was poor. (laughs) I wasn't going to contribute much to the system anyway. And I wasn't part of an organized struggle. There are organized struggles. There's national war tax resistors league. There's all many, there's, all kinds of people who are actually doing collective efforts to keep their income under a certain amount and do other things to make sure that they're not participating in that system. But I didn't go about it that way, right? My ego was driving the strategy and my ego has paid the price. And when I think about my fractal responsibility, it's like the thing that I want to do, which is stopping war, not participating in and investing in war culture, that's a good thing that I want to do. But in order to be a part of something that actually is effective in creating that change, I would always have to come together with others to make it happen. And that move from recognizing like, what is it that I want as a single cell of this larger collective organism? And then how can I affect that change inside the larger organism? 
the way it's always through collectivism. Like somehow I have to find the other cells that think like this. And then we have to see if we can spread that to other cells to think like this. And then in that way, we'll be able to move. And when I came across the idea of fractals, which I learned um, like in the late 2000s, um, I came across this concept and it, it obviously it's been around for a long time, but um, it, it was one of those, again, like lens shifting prism kind of ideas where I was like, that's the thing I've been trying to get at. That's the thing I'm talking about is this idea that there's actually these beautiful patterns in the world that from the smallest scale that you can observe them to the largest scale are the same pattern. And we get some glimpses of this um, as human beings. We can see ferns around us and we can look at the smallest little leaf of the fern and we can look at the whole shape of the fern and even the way that it grows in, in the wild and see the same pattern at every scale. We can see this with fiddleheads. We can see this with the spirals that are on our fingerprints, which look the same as galaxies, you know? We can see this. And what started to click for me was, I think we can also see this in social patterns. If we are thinking that we're gonna be able to change something at the large scale that we have no embodied practice with at the small scale, we're operating in a kind of delusion. And I think that for organizers, it's a dangerous delusion because we think we can still practice in the hierarchical patriarchal capitalist racist ways, you know, we can not change anything about how we're being, but we can call out our government and say, it needs to change, justice needs to change, abolish the prison system. We need, you know, to overthrow the government. We need to move to socialism or whatever. And I was like, are you practicing socialism? Are you even practicing mutual aid? Are you practicing a transformative justice or anything that's not punitive? Are you practicing um, shared governance and you know consensus and making decisions together? Because if you're not, when we abolish the existing systems, no one's going to have an embodied practice to fill in that space and help lead us in any other direction. And what we see in humans is that we default to whoever has the most authority in those circumstances, right? So I was just recently listening to an audio book and they were revisiting Arab Spring. And I was thinking about that. And it was like, oh, there's this massive revolution in Egypt. It's so exciting. And then very quickly, oh, the military <laughs> has taken over. And it's like, that happens not because there wasn't a true revolutionary spirit in Egypt and a true need for an overthrow of power or change of power, but because it actually takes a lot to harness a large scale system into new practice. And you need more than a square full of people to be able to do that, you know? Um, I juxtapose that to like the Zapatistas, right? Who back in 1994 had a similar, what felt like a massive uprising and reclaiming of space. But instead of trying to make a bid for taking over the whole country, what they did was demanded a sovereignty for their own experimentation, for their own space to create an alternative. And in order to get to that point that we saw in 1994, there was a 10-year campaign of door-to-door, person-to-person conversations around building a shared vision, right? A fractal, viral spreading of concepts and shaping and seeing who else wants to be in this pattern? Who else maybe already is in this pattern in an isolated way? Can we start to galvanize that together? And I love 
looking at those kinds of models in relationship to each other, because then it says, okay, we can do the bombastic, very public organizing that happens every four years around the large scale electoral, you know, conversations, at least in the US. I think a lot of places have some similar patterns. Or we can try to move culture. And if we shift culture, it is inevitable that all these systems have to change and fall and everything else, um, in part because we've shifted the culture, in part because they're so top heavy that they're gonna just fall anyway. But it is if, if we know that it is inevitable that change is coming, then in these fractal practices, we can determine the direction that, that happens when that change comes. Um, so a recent example is through the pandemic, we've seen all the people who were like, I can throw money at this and either try to keep myself safe, that didn't work, right? Rich people died alongside poor people. We can try to throw structures at this and pretend it's not happening and just like choose the economy first, great. Tons of people died from that. We can choose mutual aid. And a lot of people experimented with mutual aid. And for the people who experimented with that, they made it through this pandemic in large numbers. And I don't think we'll be able to see the full, you know, I think there are people, there are hopefully going to be great research projects around what happened with people who were able to turn to mutual aid and support each other through versus folks who are like, I don't have the sense that I can turn and ask anyone else for help. And so I'm falling through the cracks or I'm taking risks, I have to risk my life because I don't have anyone I can turn to for help. I'm grateful that I was a part of a community where nobody that I know personally had to take unnecessary risks with their life because of economic conditions, because we got transparent with each other and we had a different kind of conversation and we redistributed our resources, mm. right? As we could. Um, and I'm, I'm not prideful about that. It's really just grateful that I'm like, okay, that was a, that was a practice round. And we took fractal responsibility for each other. We each were like, what can I practice differently during this time? And, and it wasn't, you know, I also, I've, I've written about this, but I wasn't, I also did this. I'm hoarding. I'm terrified. Yeah. I'm like locked in my house and I'm really judging and it. it it's helping me to say, you guys are stupid and I can't, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about you. I'm only going to worry about my friends. I also did those human behaviors. Um, and which also feels important to me to just be responsible to myself. I'm like, oh, what made it, where was I able to be better? Where did I default to my worst self? What did I learn in this round of experimentation? Because we're going to have more of these, that the nature of the climate and political and economic conditions we've set up means that we're going to have increasing global pandemic conditions and increasing climate refugee conditions and increasing catastrophic apocalyptic conditions. And each round, I'll have chances to practice moving towards my vision of a liberated species. Well, maybe that's a good place to bring in another story that you brought up in both earlier today, but also in our back and forth before today, that um, the ones who walk away from Omelas, because to me, at least, it, it feels like it's a story. It's also a thought experiment. And it feels like a yeah. thought experiment around fractal responsibility on one level. Like that could be one way you could look yeah. at this society and the way it's organized itself is, is, um, is around perhaps the denial of, of, of fractal responsibility. But talk to us about why this story came up when we were 
imagining together a conversation about social justice and science fiction? In a nutshell, this I love this story. It's really a beautiful one to just read and revisit. And it's a beautiful story to teach with and talk about, like, because it's so easily applicable to what we're dealing with. So in the story, basically, we're in this gorgeous utopian town, <laughs> almost, right? And it's gorgeous. Like the utopian is like people are riding around naked on bareback on horses and everyone's gorgeous and everyone has adequate food and adequate housing and, um, you know, can do what they want to do. And there's just joy and pleasure and abundance. And the visual of it is just very um, pleasure dome. You know, it's just like, oh, the beautiful people living beautiful lives. And um, but at a certain age, um, part of the coming of age of this town is that you were taken to see this um, cell, this prison cell. And in this prison cell, there is a child who is chained to the wall, who's living in total squalor, total misery. And you're, it's explained to you that this is the cost of this town. Basically, the magic, the spell, the balance of this town is that one child has to be in this state and then everything else gets to exist at the utopian level. And, um, and so then the title is speaking about that some people see that and they're like, this is okay, collateral damage for me. Like it's that sad, but I'm gonna keep enjoying my utopian life. And then that there are the rare exceptions of those who walk away, who are like, I actually can't handle the burden of knowing that that child is there. Um, and so it becomes this beautiful story where, you know, as you're reading it, you're like, which one would I be? You know, what choice would I make? Right. And I want to throw in here that the Black science fiction writer N.K. Jemison did a short story in response to this yes. that was like The Ones Who Stay and Fight, I think is the name of it. Um uh, which is just, again, ex extending the thought experiment. I, I don't feel like I necessarily, it's not like, yeah, and then she she did this to it. It's just a fun thing. Like, well, what if you were like, there, there's a third way, which is like, no, we're going to we're gonna free this child and we're going to stop this practice. And so, but I love this thought experiment for social justice because it's a, it's a nice introduction to starting to have a critique of capitalism, starting to have a critique of what the privileged live inside of the kind of bubble that you live inside of when you're a privileged person and how many privileged people, once they learn about the injustices are like, I'm okay with it. And I'm going to keep going inside of my privilege. And then how many of us, I think who end up becoming organizers, you know, our spiritual orientation is we're the ones who walk away from that kind of injustice. And, we, and we're like, we don't know what the future holds outside of this context, but we are willing to go in that direction and see. And I think that's, um, I think it's, yeah, to me, it feels like a foundational text. Like it, you know, if I'm giving a class on science fiction and social justice, this is a foundational text. Well, let me do another um, sort of unwieldy question around, yeah. around this. Um, Cause I love these questions. <laughs> I'm like, do it. <laughs> So, so as part of my preparation for today, I, I was also getting ready for a uh, conversation for a, a non-Leguin part of my show, the the main podcast between the covers. And I was preparing for my conversation, which happened a month ago with uh, the poet Solma Sharif. And I was I was looking around on the web for talks or essays 
on the poetics of violence. And I came across a lecture by Fred Moten called Transubstantiation and Co-Substantiality. And I didn't use the I didn't use his lecture in my conversation with Solmaz, but when I listened to it, I was so surprised what the content was that I, I have been thinking about it ever since and was and wanted to bring it up with you. Um, because from the beginning and all the way through the talk, um, Fred uh, talks about the short story, Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. But he, he talked about it in relationship to the work of an anthropologist he admires, Elizabeth Pavanelli, who has a book called Economies of Abandonment. And in that book, she uses Le Guin's story and also the 1977 film by Charles Burnett, The Killer of Sheep, as frames through which to look at her work with Australian Aboriginal communities. Um, Pavanelli talks about what she calls late liberal imaginaries, where the people who suffer the most, um, the most socioeconomic effects of poverty also end up taking the most responsibility for it. Um, And Moten relates this story of a young man in this Aboriginal community who battles alcoholism, suffers from skin sores, has high blood pressure, was hospitalized for congestive heart failure while his mother was in the late stages of oral cancer, his father having died when he was a teenager of a stroke, his uncles and sisters with very similar stories. He's told by the doctors that he needs to stop drinking, and yet yet when he comes out of the hospital, he demands that his family take him to the liquor store to buy alcohol with the money that he saved while he was hospitalized. When his family refuses, he says he could do what he wants with his own body. He knows the risks, and these are his risks to take. But his aunt, who's 40 years his senior, strongly disagrees with his social imaginary he's putting forth, and she puts forth another. She says, no, that is not your body. That is my body. When you die, my body will suffer and die. And she's not talking about empathetic forms of grief, Mm. that she would mourn him, but that they shared a body, or in Pavanelli's words, quote, the woman was attempting to mobilize a discourse of socially co-substantial corporeality against her nephew's social imaginary of individuated bodies. And this, this brings us, at least it brings me back to your notion of the imagination battle, yeah. I think. Um, but I think what Moten and Pavanelli are suggesting is that Le Guin is putting forth a model of social imagination too, that we are co-substantial, that we share a body with the child that's in the broom closet. And I think of some of your descriptions of collective activity in other species. Uh, For instance, you talk about ants creating floating mounds as a sort of foundation for their communities made of their own bodies. And I don't know if any of this is related, but I was curious about what you think of this notion of the shared body as a foundation for a society, because part of this thought experiment that's so like that makes it the conundrum is the only way these people can liberate the child in the bloom closet is if they're willing to acknowledge that they have to diminish some of their own welfare, essentially, 
to do so, that they are the same, that they are part of the same. And only in the denial of that, it seems like, is, is this utopian or so-called utopian vision allowed to, to flourish? Yeah, I, am, I really like this question. And I love, Fred Moten is one of my favorite people to listen to. Like I love to, like I, I find interviews with them because I, I'm always really um, delighted and surprised by his mind. Like I find his writing very, very dense and, and difficult. Yes, <laughs> but I'm like, when I listen to him talk about it, I'm like, got it. Like we're reviving. Um, and so a few things pop into my mind here. One is that the idea of, that we are one body is so it's so fundamentally true to me that I can't I can't it's like I can't see the world some other way now like it clicked for me that I'm like we are on a planet and we are of the planet of the body we are of the body of the planet like it's not even just like oh our species is one body it's like all of this is one thing <laughs> this whole ecosystem this whole experiment is one thing orbiting in space altogether, which is its own huge one thing. And the relationships we're having are always symbiotic. Um, so if we're in denial of that, we can have you know some pleasure, some experiment, and even generations of that. But that doesn't make it less true that we are actually still of one body. And um, I think when you look at those people, I, I'm always interested in people who where there's no intervention, but they recognize that something's wrong. So, you know, people who are like abolitionists, you know, even though they were born into a slave owning families or slave owning societies, and they were part of that. And they were like, but I can see the humanity of these people. And I can't deny that. And I'm going to go, you know, and the people who predated like having all the books and the analysis and the teaching and the interventions and the organizing, I'm always fascinated because I'm like, even without all that, people can feel the oneness. People can feel I am connected. My survival is connected. My, my well-being and quality of my life is directly connected to what happens with this other person. And one of the ideas that I, I spoke about a lot after Octavia's group came out that came clear to me as we were in the scholarship of that book is there are not utopias that exist without dystopias to support them. And many science fiction books actually trouble that, you know, like, like really look at that and you're like, oh, like somewhere there's some sacrifice, somewhere someone's carrying the load, somewhere some work is happening. In a lot of, you know, thrilling, exciting future books, there's robots cyborgs other people who are trying to have be our slave bodies right because we're just like i don't want to somewhere someone's got to hold the labor for me <laughs> and instead of turning and being like what it means to be alive is to do a certain amount of labor and like every cell in the body has a job to do and that's part of what it means to be of a body and it's not all the same work you know so like right now i live a life as a writer and if I am like, I'm taking my job really seriously, it doesn't mean I never clean my house, but I do hire people to come clean my house, right? There's, there's a way that I'm like, oh, this work that I'm doing, this work that's calling to me, it requires a certain balancing act, right? And how do I be in right relationship with those who I'm going to 
invite into my home and that's the labor that they're doing. And how do I say, how do I not say my labor is more important than your labor, right? How do I reflect that in the economic choices I make with them, in the way I communicate with them, in the dignity with which I honor their schedule and mine and all the, there's a lot of ways where I'm like, how can I be intentional about this? Is there a way to be intentional about this in a society that values these roles so different? And for me, not walking away from Omalas shows up in those kind of moments, right? It's like, oh, I, I'm not going to be like, I'm a revolutionary over here, but over here, I'm, I'm just a boss with nameless workers, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. so, um, so I feel like that piece, um, I also feel like, and I want to, I hope I can say this really coherently, but it's something I think about a lot as I have extracted myself from the 24-hour news cycle and the media cycle, which is like, it wants us to look at suffering as entertainment rather than as something that we're supposed to respond and act on. And I think that that is one of the most dangerous things that has happened, particularly in this, this period of history is now we have the internet, we have news, we have people constantly reporting on everything that's happening around the world, but there's this disconnect that happens the othering that happens where it's like, oh, that thing over there, the most I could do to interact with that would be charity, right? It's like from my position of privilege, not giving anything up of my privilege, here's what I can do for that thing over there. And that condition, right, to me is like the near enemy of justice, the near enemy of um, actual freedom, because you're able to say, oh, I... I'm connected in a way that I have total control over and don't have to sacrifice anything and don't have to take on any labor. And what does it actually mean to be in solidarity? Like, and now part of why I've been like, I'm, I can't tap into all of that because it's literally impossible for me to be in a true, effective, authentic, actionable solidarity with all of that. What I am now tuned into is much more what is happening in my immediate realm, right? in the relationships that are mutual and can be mutual. So I look at my resources each year and I'm like, what is enough? This is my enough. Everything that I make above that is redistribution work, right? It's like, how do I make sure that that is flowing back into my community? There's single moms in my community. They're receiving those resources, right? That's who I feel. That's why I'm just like, it's my easy focus is I'm like, I am not a mother. I'm not planning to have children, but there are mothers in my life. And I play an active, loving role with their kids, but also an economic role of redistributing the support. Because what it means to be a single mom is that you do not have the same level of time and energy to just dedicate yourself to economic gains, mm -hmm. right? Um, stuff like that. I'm like, how do I make it personal? What is, how does justice work at a very personal level in my life? I can't change how it's happening everywhere. Right now, I'm trying to get really good at abolishing punitive behaviors from my own practice, right? So when I have an argument, when I'm going through big changes with people, when I feel really harmed by someone, I'm really tuned into what is my punitive training tell me to do in this moment, which would require my othering of that person, my dehumanizing of that person, my reduction of them to their worst behavior. Okay, I can see that. That's one path. That would be for me, homeless, right? I can lock you in a cell in the basement and I can go have a good day. Or I can let you be a free person 
you made a mistake. I can make, you know, what do I need? Do I need an apology, right? How do I not punish you, but let there be consequences? How do I set boundaries so that you can't cause that kind of harm again? I'm really at that level of practice and it has been life transforming to move away from theory and, you know, just theory. I would think of it almost as a reactive theoretical life that most of us are living, right? That's, that's what we're set up to do. It's just like be a cog in the system, have your nine to five, pay attention to what the news tells you to pay attention to, react to it, have a strong reaction to it, do nothing really about that reaction, maybe give $5 <laughs> and then keep going about your cog in the system life and then you die. And you don't really have to, you don't touch too much, you know? And the shift from that reactive theoretical living into embodied practiced living of whatever your values are, right? It's a, it's a radical shift. And I feel like I'm in a decade of it. If this makes sense, like if I look at my life, I'm like, oh, now that I see how important the embodiment is and the practices, I want to really spend some time in here so that then I can feel like, okay, am I, can I feel my impact as a human being in a different way? And this brings us back into the dispossessed too. And the Omelas is like, oh, like, like, you know, I'm sitting with, I'm like, do I want to keep selling books? You know, is there like, if that's the only, in, you know, that's my income stream right now is to sell these books. And I'm like, is there another way that I can let these ideas flow out into the world and still have enough? Mm-hmm. And it's like a real question for me, right? I'm like, can I make my contribution without making it transactional and still survive and be okay? What would I need to do to make that happen? And like, just sitting with those kind of questions, like, can I have a travel ban on myself now? So I only travel for, very rare instances of love, family, or something I consider like a like a once in a lifetime opportunity, right? But otherwise, I'm like, if it can be done virtually, then it's not worth the carbon footprint of, of traveling, especially not when I'm like, let me fly over there so I can tell you how bad the environment is and like how bad the climate crisis is. I'm like, who who am I? Who am I to have that impact on our precious earth? You know, I want to think about every time I do make that move, it needs to be worth the price that it costs, you know? So those kind of, that kind of thinking all feels wrapped up in, you know, when I think of the question you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to, I'd love to spend one more moment with Moten and Le Guin together. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Did you know if they ever got to speak? I had no idea that he had any, engagement or interest with her i'm I'm like this is so exciting i didn't know that either (laughs) i love that i turn on this this speech and it's like oh my god all he's talking about ursula um but in that in that same speech he talks about how he feels like there's just ample research and studies that more and more is constantly undermining the idea of the individual body yes much in the same way that physics is questioning the fundamental notion of the particle and he goes on to say that he, he doesn't like the phrase the black body because blackness is the constant refusal of the notion of the individual body. And that the trouble with the reduction to the numerical, the reduction to the calculable, is that even when we are talking about massive man-made death, 
when we reduce it to numbers, we miss the genocidal implication of it. And that um, for him, the phrase Black Lives Matter misses the point that Pavanelli and Le Guin talk about. The point is, according to Moton, not that Black Lives Matter, but that Black Life Matters. That we, that we know enough now to talk about difference without incarcerating it within the figure of the individual body. I love that, mm-hmm. that he says it this way, mm-hmm. that we know enough about, we know enough to talk about difference mm-hmm. without incarcerating it within the figure of the individual body. It doesn't mean uniformity or a lack of differentiation, but rather the non-policing of differentiation. Mm-hmm. Or as Pavanelli says of Le Guin, Le Guin's fiction rejects the ethics of liberal empathy. Instead, the ethical imperative is to know that your own good life is already in her broom closet, that you either must create a new organization of enfleshment by compromising on the goods to which you have grown accustomed and grown accustomed to thinking of as quote-unquote yours, including the health of your body, or you must admit that the current organization of enfleshment is more important to you than the child's suffering. And I guess, I, I mean, my, my question for you, it seems like a, um, it's an interesting move because this idea of the shared body and what we need to do if we're going to truly recognize it, it, there's sort of a paradoxical move, I think, that needs to happen. And I wonder if you think this is true. But if we want to take this notion of the shared body seriously, it requires that we look in the mirror and return to the self in a way also, like that we place ourselves within the body. Um, that as, as we said at the beginning, like not stand outside of the body and tell others what's wrong with it, but find our way, the way we're a fractal within it, good and bad. Am I, am I making sense? You are. And I think there's such a, there's a tenderness in all of it, right? Because there's also the, I think of it sometimes as like, oh, the brain cells would recognize this while the heart cells will recognize something else and be motivated by something else. And the cells that make up the palms of our hand might be motivated by something else. And so when I hear things, you know, sometimes like this, I'm like, yes, we have to recognize that even within that non-individuation, there's so many different roles or callings. And so, you know, something like the Black Lives Matters distinction. I'm like, it's a beautiful distinction that the brain cells can make, which is like, we have to be thinking outside of the individualization of our suffering and understand that there's something larger happening. But then from the heart cell or from even the cells of the back that is actually being shot at, um, there's a different experience, right? Which is like part of how oppression works is isolation, is pulling us apart from each other and making us feel like there is no community that will keep you safe. And by planting that in our imaginations, making it come true, right? That it's like, that is currently a lot of the Black experiences, no matter how much I belong to Blackness and how much I love Blackness and love my Black community, if someone wants to isolate and pick me out of that community and take me down right now, mostly they could, right? And they can, and they do regularly. And so in that way, both things are true at the same time. Like 
Black lives matter because Black life matters. And both things are true. In the same way, if you've ever loved someone who has cancer, it's like the whole body is the place where health or non-health is happening. But those cancer cells really matter. Like, can they be isolated and removed in time to save this life? Or will they take over and become the life force? And I think we, you know, Octavia Butler was up to something really tricky with cancer in one of her texts in which she says, like this whole alien species comes and they're like, that cancer is actually the best thing you guys have. <laughs> you don't understand how to work with it, but it's actually a really generative thing. And I think of us sometimes that way that I'm like, in order for these ideas of a non-individuation, non-individualized world to exist, we almost have to become a cancer to that idea, right? We have to be something that swallows that idea with the strength of the collective, which is viral and growing and able to change the conditions, right? Change fundamentally the body. And because I hate cancer and what it has taken from me, it's very hard for me to open my idea to the model of it as an inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, can I hold both of those things at the same time? And for me, each time I can hold a multitude of ideas, two or more concepts at the same time and recognize the possibility of them, the reality of them, that is how I make possibility for being more than just an individual body. But I'm like, even myself, I am many ideas. I am ancestral. Like I have ancestral memories. I have ancestral shapings that come from many places. And I want to share my nibbling has this idea, this beautiful idea of doing this game that's like a time travel game. But part of the problem of the time travel game is that it's like, well, if I was to travel back in any time as a multiracial, multi-tribal, multi-lineaged person, how would I function in any time before this one? Like, I, you know, there's not really a way for me to function. And we run into this because it's like, my, there's so, we all have this now, so many lineages that would not, that, that would, it's literally like there would be a war within myself to try to go back to any other time because the oppression, the battles, the paradigms were so um, intensive. And that allows me to be like, oh, it's always been this one body warring with itself warring, and coming into, into new relationship. And I do think, I don't subscribe to the thing of like, we're just going to make love until everybody is mixed and then we'll all be one body to get it, you know? Right. Um, because I, I think that there's this dangerous collapse of, culture, this dangerous collapse into um, sort of the, the whiteness of the absence of culture, right? I think this has already happened for whiteness, where it's like, you've already, you know, in some ways lost the beautiful aspects of Italian and Irish and Polish and all these beautiful cultures with indigenous lineages that take back all the way to original instructions of land in certain places, right? There's all of that gets lost in that process of collapsing all into one. And I do find blackness for me to be the, I'm like blackness contains multitude, right? That most of the black people I know are like, oh, I still have some sense of lineage. Indigeneity, right? It's like, I still have that original multitude. And if we can understand that a one, that one body still contains multitudes, still contains many different purposes, then I think we can break through in this idea to a different place. And I, I think that's where 
when Moten is making an invitation to us to be like, oh, it's this, there's a wholeness, right? That follows through this thread of like, if black life matters, it is because life matters. It's because being alive matters and all the different experiences of being alive matter. But where we need to bring our attention is to the places where we don't know that, where we don't remember that. Mm-hmm. And the work there always ends up being on those who are oppressed to do the remembering. And I keep thinking of Toni Morrison lately and how she talked about racism as a distraction. And where I'm like, I really want to push that work back on those who are doing the oppressing, right? That I'm like, this othering is your work to figure out. The rest of us are interested and in already practicing coexisting in a lot of multitudinous ways. And like, what does it look like to push the oppressive tendency towards otherness back where it belongs rather than constantly centering it in every conversation and then trying to, you know, find justice inside of that. Well, let me ask you a question that may or may not be about the way you and Le Guin diverge, just in the sense that you, you mentioned at the beginning, the very different subject positions that you have in, in the world. Um, Yeah. As I said earlier, I, I discovered this Fred Moten talk when I was I was looking for um, talks about violence for a conversation with the poet Soma Sharif. And I wanted to bring that up here too. Le Guin was a pacifist, uh, not only philosophically and politically, but also narratively, trying to imagine different ways to tell a story and move the story forward that weren't predicated on conflict. Um, that we weren't always um, saying that a story needs conflict to be a story, for instance. And when I think of when when I think of emergent strategy and fractal responsibility, it feels like it is putting a lot of value on not just the ends but on the means. That if the means mm-hmm. if the means are rotten, much like fractals or holographs, that rottenness will reproduce itself in the ends. That perhaps. Fractal responsibility is the opposite of by any means necessary. But I also realize Le Guin, as you said, was a white heterosexual woman in a nuclear family uh, coming from a family of esteemed academics. Um, Her community wasn't riven through with the violence of the communities Pavanelli, Pavanelli was engaging with, for instance, where violence against the system that is killing them could be framed as self-defense. Um, you've written about this in essays like We Cannot Conquer Each Other, where you say things like, we can't win by becoming what we are fighting against, or the lie is that we can win safety through violence and war. But I guess I was just hoping you could speak into this fraught question of violence with regards to fractals and means and ends and striving towards the politics of liberation. I think about this all the time, like all the time. And I think about it as what happens when people can be intentional and like have intentional space and time when people have, you know, I find it really fascinating that a lot of times if you are in a meditation practice, after sitting on the mat for any period of time, you might reach a pacifist place, right? You might reach a a place of like, oh, we're all connected. I understand this now. And 
you know, when someone is enacting violence, that violence is in them, but I don't have to take it on and put, let it be in me. They, you know, I, I think there's something interesting about the pattern of that. And then I think what happens in a lot of the communities that I'm from and that I serve is we don't actually ever get the space to have that sitting, that quietness, that safety to reflect, right? We're under such constant attack and people, use the term violence often speaking only of the physical acts of attack but not about the entire systemic frameworks that justify or allow for those attacks to to happen and so one of the things i've been thinking about lately is i'm like well when is violence justified and how does this change over the course of a lifetime so I would say in college and for years afterwards i really identified in a much more pacifist way I was really committed to nonviolence. I studied Gandhian works and Kingian works and really was just like, oh, that is beautiful. That works. Um, but then at the same time, was looking at places where genocide has been attempted, where genocide has been successful and looking at what's happening to Black people in the U.S. right now and just tracking the numbers of it, you know, and just feeling like, oh, like, there are places where if you don't stand up, if you don't make a physical response and an ideological response, you will be erased. And is it an act of violence to make those responses or is it an act of taking root, right? So like to the soil, it might feel violent that the spade breaks through the soil, tears it up, and you know, pulls out a bunch of weeds. And like, we don't know how that feels to the soil, right? To be manipulated by human hands for the sake of growth, right? To be filled with seed, you know, um, new seed sometimes, right? We don't know how that feels. And, but for me, I'm like, if it's violence, I'm okay with it that way, right? I'm okay with the violence of turning the soil. I'm okay with the weeding out of things that are dead or are gone or are causing harm or invasive species, right? Like I'm like, how do we weed those things out so that we can actually be in, figure out the right relationship this soil could have for producing life? And it helps me to look at nature, you, as you know, like this is this has really been something that's helped me is there are collaborative species and there are you know species that really work as individuals. And those species that operate as individuals are the ones that tend to have to be the most violent to claim territory and to protect their territory. Whereas a lot of the species that are much more collaborative, it, you know, they're often, I identify, you know, they're often overlap with vegetarian. They often overlap with, oh, I don't have to kill anything else necessarily to live, or I don't have to kill anything sentient to live because even, you know, plants are alive. <laughs> we right. take them out of the ground, we eat them, whatever. Um, but I look at nature for this because I'm like, oh, there's a way that we can get very wrapped up in a moral imperative of never ever causing harm, even if it means not protecting ourselves. And the thing that is much more interesting to me is what does it mean to be in the dignity of our lives and to break cycles of harm at a collective level rather than reacting to them at an individual level. So like when someone comes at me, when someone attacks me personally, I very much am trained in that Aikido model of like, how can I, move out of the way, move off the line. I'm not actually fighting against you. I'm moving with the universe towards life. And so what you're bringing towards me is like, 
you're moving against the universe. And more high yeshiva said that. It's like, if you fight me, you are, you're fighting the whole universe. So you've already lost, right? Like there's no, you cannot, there's no victory against all of life. And I see us very much involved in that particular battle right now, that there are people, huge numbers, disappointing, devastating numbers of people whose daily activity is putting them at odds with life. They are moving against life existing, against our species existing, against justice of our species existing. I don't want to go head to head in reactive battle with them. I don't want to get in a fist fight with them. I'm not interested in that kind of war. And I don't think we can win. And I've said this, I've written about this. I think we end up in a really devastating false paradigm if we think that we can have a victory, a physical warlike victory over war concepts, over people who want to be at war. I'm like, if we get down in the mud with that, we will lose. It, you just watch the pendulum swing back and forth, back and forth between slight conservatism, slight progressivism, but no one actually wins. We're still in the battle. To me, victory is when we actually heal the relationship that exists between us and between us and the land. And I think that's far off yet, but I think it's a practice many of us are engaging in already, where it's like, I'm interested in sovereignty. I'm interested in succession. I'm interested in like, what does it look like to collectively move off the line of that? And I think that brings us back to the conversation that happens in the dispossessed because, um, and I think the question that Octavia E. Butler was asking with her parables of the sower, which, where she says, we have a destiny to take root amongst the stars. And in the end of that book, they end up leaving the planet of earth altogether. Um, but it's a devastating, you know, she was never able to finish that trilogy because leaving earth was such a heartbreak, right? But I'm like, well, maybe we're not the ones who leave earth. This is my new idea. It's like, maybe we let the Elon Musk people go make their place elsewhere and they go, right? And we can be the meek who inherit the earth. You know, we can be the meek who would be stay here. And, and it's just like, you rich, wealthy, you go conquer whatever else. I'm sure we'll run into some alien species who will put you in your place. But we are actually made to be here and we're made to root here and live here. And so what at what point in history are we at a place where it says we reject those ideas, not from a place of pacifism, but from a place of moving towards a true victory for our species, which is healing the relationship such that it cannot be ruptured by that othering. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about how we get there because I, I think tr- the traumatic experiences of war make it so hard in a lifetime to hold that kind of position and hold your keep your eyes on that longer prize. Like even now, as I say that, it's because I've never had to be displaced from my home or displaced from my land. I've never had to be a migrant. I've never had to be a refugee carrying my child and everything I own on my back because someone has killed my whole village. Like there's experiences that I'm like, I don't know how I could hold this ideology and have those experiences. Mm. Um, I don't judge anyone who has those experiences and does not have this ideology. I think that's what we have to figure out, right? But I do feel like ultimately the people who can teach us the most about this are the indigenous communities who have survived every attempt at genocide and still sit and open the circle and allow, for instance, white men to come sit in that circle and receive healing and receive ceremony. I think they have figured out something about this that we can all learn from 
And I'm trying, that's the, that's the spirit that I want to be learning in. And that's another place, again, where Le Guin and I, I feel like found some kinship in terms of like, who will be interested in learning from in our lifetimes? Um, you well, know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. a perfect segue to what I was going to ask next regarding looking to indigenous lifeways as an inspiration for the future as one further way we connect your work in Le Guin's. But something you, you said briefly in passing makes me want to pause just a little bit longer first around the question of resistance against violence um, yeah. and or disrupting it in order to survive and live with dignity. Um, obviously, it's a topic we could create a whole podcast series on and still be unpacking complicated and sometimes seemingly contradictory positions at the same time. Um, this question about violence, about what it is, when it is justified, about ends in relation to the means, seems important enough that I, I kind of wish that it was a podcast on this. But um, for instance, the thorny question of how to know when we're reproducing the very damaging structures of of those that oppress us, and when are we pushing back in order to live, which surely sometimes we might be doing both. Um, yeah. but I like what you said about how sometimes the soil needs to be disrupted and overturned yeah. simply to breathe and live and be soil, um, perhaps soil versus dirt, um, that certain situations are so riven through with an untenable violence that those suffering it in trying to create the space to live, to breathe, if they need to disrupt and overturn the status quo to do so something that may cause harm in the process. To me, that feels super different than the violence inflicted on them in the first place as a matter of course. Absolutely. But when we move into the language of gardening, which you just briefly did, um, particularly weeding and invasive species, I get uneasy because of the long history of its use by the far right. And I'm thinking mm -hmm. most notably with the Nazis, mm -hmm. um, much of whose language around the nation was also around nature, the land, the water, the air of mm. Germany, mm -hmm. and this desire to return to sort of a mythic pastoral state um, mm. that was a big in the imagination of Germany going back to the 19th century. But going back to like this, this imagined natural state where the forests would have non-native species removed, um, which they talked a lot about, and then repopulated with Germanic species, more wolves, more eagles uh, getting boosted, um, but also where the people who weren't considered natural to the quote-unquote soil, the Jews, the Roma, were to be removed for the sake of this restoration to an ecological balance. Um, even the person who coined the term ecology in Germany had these really disturbing racist theories. Um, then I'm thinking also about the contemporary uh, far-right attacks uh, in Christchurch and El Paso and mm -hmm. other places where the people are self-proclaimed eco-fascists and they espouse concern for the earth and believe that overpopulation would be solved through anti-immigration policies and and really through eugenics. Um, yeah. And then we could also say that settler, settler colonialism often uses the biblical garden and, and the garden garden making the desert mm -hmm. bloom and other things as, as a metaphor. All of this to say, when, when, <laughs> I, <laughs> when I hear this and I think about what we were discussing earlier, 
about not pointing out what is wrong in the world as if we are outside of that wrongness. Yeah. I do wonder who gets to be the gardener, who gets to weed. How do we know that the things getting weeded out aren't simply a reproduction of, of the genocidal dystopias that support so many utopias? How, how do we know mm-hmm. that the person we are calling an invasive species or the person we're putting in the broom closet, if we're thinking of Omelas, is in fact that and not just our way to justify what we've gained? Um, yeah. That the problem maybe with the metaphor is that the gardener is standing outside of the vegetable box making choices for it and he's not being or he or she's not being gardened himself. And I guess I just wanted to <laughs> introduce the, un- yeah. the uneasiness around it, not because I expect us to come up with the answer, but to at least maybe just do another round because... What I find so compelling about fractal responsibility versus gardening is that it feels like it tethers us to the repercussions of what we bring into the world. We are yeah. we are both beholden to and living within the ripples we create and reproduce. So if we re- return to like what I was suggesting earlier that maybe fractal responsibility might at least on the surface seem like the opposite of by any means necessary it makes me think of another line from Le Guin's The Lathe of Heaven. In that book, she says, the end justifies the means. But then she continues, but what if there never is an end? All we have is means. This whole thing makes me feel like (laughs) this is about the imagination battle, right? Like, I mean, we can battle about the garden, but really... I mean, not you and me battling, but there is this weaponized version. There's this weaponized mythos. And I guess I just wanted to attend to that language one more moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, I love the breadth of the reflection. And one of the things when I was first working on emergent strategy, one of the things that became clear to me is that you can justify anything with a natural metaphor, like anything, you know, there are alpha dominant hierarchical creatures who just kill for fun and that's out there, (laughs) you know, um, there are creatures who steal each other's eggs and eat them. There are creatures who, um, do all manner of, of violent things. And so, you know, for me, it's always really important. Like, Oh, I don't want to romanticize nature as just like every single thing that nature does is worth perpetuating for humans. I always think that's what nature does when it can't reason. And, And then within that, where do we see collaboration and where do we see survival? And, um, you know, this piece around invasive species, for me, I will say that the place I'm able to find some peace in it is less about thinking about people, like distinct people or kinds of people as the invasive species, but thinking of ideas as the invasive species Mm -hmm. and that anything in the wrong setting could become an invasive species, any idea in the wrong setting. So like, you know, an idea of, I want to protect my family in the wrong setting, in the wrong scenario where it's like, oh, I need to protect my family from all black people, (laughs) you know, right. It's like, oh, there you go. You know, I think a lot of what happened with the Holocaust was that, that there's like, oh, there's a sense of national pride, but it was rooted in something that was an invasive species, which is, I think the idea of supremacy. Like I, I think any idea of a biological supremacy over each other is an invasive species of an idea 
and it's not good for any of the ecosystems, right, that we live in. And with the gardening metaphor, though, <laughs> it gets more complex because I'm also messing with this um, reflection of like, I grew up in a very human-centered worldview. And in a human-centered worldview, the acts of the gardener are benevolent. You know, it's like I'm in the garden and I'm just weeding so that, you know, my flowers are beautiful or whatever. But, you know, for the dandelion roots, it's a different story, right? It's like, I am an incredible magical medicine that grows in abundance. And yet everywhere I show up, I'm considered not as beautiful as the other flowers and they, they weed me out, right? So it really depends on like, who's the storyteller and, and who's the beneficiary. Um, and one of the reasons I identify as a post-nationalist is because I don't know that we can always agree on who should get to be the storyteller and who should get to be the beneficiaries. And I wonder if we are wasting precious experimental time in figuring out how humans can be in relationship to the planet trying to argue with people who are overtaken by an invasive species idea like supremacy, right? So, you know, we spend a ton of time trying to correct, trying to weed out these things where it's like, maybe that's already gone wild. Maybe that, you know, maybe, or maybe we don't have the capacity or the scale of a gardening operation to manage that, right? There's sometimes when you have to be like, this thing has gone wild and, um, it's, there's no man made human made rules that we can apply to it. Um, you know, I keep thinking like, oh, we need to be smaller in our formations. We need to be small enough to practice values together and feel like an, a values alignment together. Right now we're in a sticky situation in the U S because we espouse democracy, but we don't practice democracy um, at most levels of anything, you know, we, we do these sort of performative dances of what a democracy might be like every right. couple of years, but we're not actually like in for most people, when I am speaking sort of the majority of, of Americans are not day-to-day -day involved in like the budgetary and decision-making and governance of the nation and like actually making decisions we're relegated to issuing opinions, you know, being befuddled and, and then, navigating the invasive species of concepts that are running rampant in our political ideologies right now. Mm -hmm. Supremacy is one of them. It shows up as race, racism. It shows up as racial capitalism. It shows up in patriarchy. It shows up in ableism. It shows up in, you know, it shows up in this idea that we can control each other's bodies. Like it, it shows up in punitive justice. Um, I'm better than someone who has made these kind of mistakes and so on and so forth. So I think long, long answer short, um, you know, my heart says we have to unhook ourselves from the idea that um, we're in control at a grand scale and that we are, you know, we're not like the gardener. Right? right. We are many, many, many gardeners of many, many patches. And there's going to be a lot of different ways that we move through that. And um, one of the things I'm trying to figure out is how to be as, how to be as free and allow my garden to be as wild as it can be without harm, like without allowing harm to perpetuate. So 
you know, I remember talking to someone who was growing, trying to grow food in Japan and they were talking about bamboo and how bamboo that had been planted to kind of create a, a natural barrier had just gone bazooka. <laughs> it was everywhere. And they they were like, oh, I, everything else I try to grow, there's bamboo <laughs> growing there. <laughs> and so it's like no harm against bamboo, right? It's kind of the same thing as in the human body cancer, right? It's like, oh, who knows what you're trying to do? You just grow. You are a grower. You <laughs> spread and grow. That's what you do. And anything that spreads and grows, you know, too much like capitalism becomes harmful to everything else around it. And I think that's the thing that we're trying to figure out right now is like, can we right size our ambition of like what our garden plot is and what our responsibility is to each other. And, and then I do think the line for me and like the people I love is we are not an invasive species, right? Like I am not something to be weeded out. I am a sentient, whole, miraculous being. I am a peer to anyone else who would be gardening, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think with the place I have to be careful is like not to commit to a pacifism that includes my own self negation or my own self-destruction, right? Yeah. That it's like, I'll turn the other cheek, but I'm like, but the problem is not that you're slapping my cheek. You're pulling me up from the root and trying to disappear me. And I think the reason indigenous peoples are still here, the reason black people are still here, the reason anyone who's ever faced that level of oppression, Jewish people, you know, are still here is that there's been some like, no, I won't be dis disappeared. I won't be erased. We will fight back. And uh, I think as we're moving towards a future in which that fight is not the, the default, right? It's like, oh, I don't want to have to fight for my right to exist. So that's what I'm worrying at all the time and thinking about all the time is like, what construct of society would allow me to just be myself safely and whole and allow people to be as ignorant as they want to be without causing harm to me. Cause yeah. I always think that I'm like, you can be as yeah. stupid as you want to be. Like if you really want to commit yourself to denying science and living on a flat earth by yourself, waiting to go to heaven and waiting for, you know, someone to come tell you whether you can do something to your body and like, whatever, like all the things that I'm just like, to me, I just see no intelligence in those worldviews, right? So I'm like, I cannot sit in the boat with you while you sink. But if you want to go think those things, I'm like, just how do we make sure that those people don't have like nuclear weapons, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, so, so, you know, there's certain things like that, that, I mean, I think it's a problem that we will have as long as humans exist. I, I don't know that we will move past it um, because the, the, sort of susceptibility to the most invasive and most dangerous concepts tends to overlap with people who are willing to cause the most harm. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, that's like, that's what we've got to figure out. Well, I'm glad we, we, we did another <laughs> back and forth around this because um, I think that having that more clearly, the barometer of how can we all be living in full dignity? Um, yeah. 
and then putting the the garden in, in tension with fractal responsibility and feeling beholden to not creating harm feels feels um, that feels really good. Yeah, no, I really appreciate I really appreciate like teasing it out too because I'm there's so many of my ideas right now that I'm like oh it's obviously like this and then I'm like oh actually it's not so obvious and and like I'm trying to learn how to be more precise so it helps to, it helps to sort of be like, is make sure you're being as precise as possible. But I also think it's important that you prefaced wanting to be precise with an important thing that you can get anything from nature. Like it's the same thing with the Bible or the Quran, like, like you can justify any lifestyle you want or condemn another, or condemn another people. Exactly. I mean, and this is where, you know, I think of it as human error, right? That I'm just sort of like, this is where the human error comes into it, which is like, I think before, uh, and I've been really wrestling with it. I'm like, oh, as a writer, this is a really hard thing to say, but I'm like, before things were written down the way they currently are, where there's like, this is the official text of, you know, this religion or this belief or this idea. It was like, people would tell stories and the morality was in some ways the responsibility of the storyteller and those who were listening to hear the story, interpret the story, remix the story, share the story, share the the values. And it was like, however you get to the moral conclusion, like you you can do it a lot of different ways, but there was a sense of like, oh, there's a value that I'm, I'm, I'm expressing and continuing on. And now that there's these texts that are like, oh, this is the text. Um, that, that interpretation is still happening, but it's as if the thing that is, that's being interpreted has no flexibility and has no morality inherent to it. (laughs) So, you know, now I look, I look at so many things. I'm like, Oh, how did we end up where we are now? Like how, where is this commitment to ignorance coming from? And in some ways I'm like, Oh, I wish, I wish we had a different way of sharing stories and ideas with each other because Mm. you know right now it's like I might use three words that clue off to someone like oh that's not someone I'm going to pay any attention to or listen to and I don't know which three words are doing that I don't know which three words are locking the door right but I'm like oh if I was able to tell it as a parable as a fable in an oral tradition that could be passed along until it actually was able to reach someone who might not hear it and not be able to hear it directly from me, but they can hear it from someone else. Mm -hmm. And so again, that comes back to my fractal responsibility piece, because I really, I am like, my job is not to try to directly deliver my ideas to anyone. It's to put the ideas out as clearly as I can, trusting that they will be reinterpreted until they reach, you know, as many people as they can in this lifetime, you know? So to return to what you said earlier about looking to indigenous people, and a kinship you feel with Le Guin in this sense, the book that Le Guin considered her most anarchist book and the one that most deconstructs the sense of story b- built around an individual hero is, is always coming home. Yeah. Um, and I think of how you call yourself a post-nationalist and that the future you envision would be returning to a more tribal sense of organization. And, I, and I, then I also think of like, Nick Estes book on indigenous resistance movements, which is titled Our History is the Future, because Le Guin's post-apocalyptic future on earth in this book 
is one that looks to indigenous history to imagine our future. So I'm just going to read. Um, Samuel Delaney was the person who reviewed Always Coming Home for the New York Times in the 80s. Yeah. So I'm just going to read a couple of little snippets of his review of Always Coming Home as part of this question. He said, Mrs. Le Guin has created an entire ethnography of the far future in her new book. It's called a novel, but even to glance at it is to suspect it's more than or other than that. The oversized trade paperback is boxed with a tape cassette of delicate songs, poems, and haunting dance pieces purportedly recorded on site. Margaret Chodo's fine line drawings portray animals, birds, sacred implements and symbols, tools, mountains, and houses. And we have charts, maps, alphabets, and a glossary. The book contains a short novel narrated by a woman called Stonetelling and a chapter two of another novel by Word River. In addition, there are poems, children's stories, adult folk tales, verse dramas, recipes, essays, and a host of Kesh documents. When did the Kesh live? They haven't yet. The Kesh have access to a daunting computer system, but they live 500 years or more in our future on the northwestern coast of what's left of a United States gone low-tech and depopulated by toxic wastes and radioactive contamination. I, I bring this up because one of the things you wanted to talk about was creating cultural artifacts, both in your own work and in Le Guin's. Uh, think of the songs in, in your novel, and Le Guin's is one example. And I just wanted to hear what you wanted to speak to in that regard about creating cultural artifacts uh, as something important to talk about maybe the less obvious thing to talk about around social justice and science fiction, but surely not a less important one. I appreciate this question. I love referencing Delaney's <laughs> take on it. I, I think always coming home is, it's an important form. To me, it's an important form because there's things, there's times when I'm writing where I feel like, oh, an idea is coming and let me play with it and flesh it out. But there's, other times when I'm writing where I'm like, I'm hearing something that is reverberating throughout time and space. And I don't know the place, I don't know the origin, but I know that it's true. And always coming home felt like that to me. Like it felt like um, Ursula Le Guin has somehow looked through the folds of time and space and she's seen this other thing, this other realm. And her love of California roots it right? That she had her own love of the whole West Coast landscape. And, and then her study, her scholarship of indigenous culture informs it. But the deconstruction of like, there is a singular narrative here that needs to be told with a major conflict at the center. She just lets go of that in so many ways. And what you're contending with is, is what I think a lot of us would be contending with in that future, which is what is my purpose? If there's multiple paths that I can take as a human being, you know, I'll taste as many of them as I can and then I'll land in what is my purpose. And the woman, the story of the woman, you know, the piece that I love about it is she grows up in this very, you know, matriarchal society and um, where things are very split. You know, there's some who stay home and build and hold the community. And then the men, including her father, go off and they are warriors and they 
are fighting and they're battling and they're, you know, navigating the world in that way. And she leaves that matriarchal space and goes off to live in the life of the warrior for a while. And then she has a child and she comes back home, you know? And I feel like for so many of us, our journey of radicalism also follows a similar arc of, you know, we grow up inside of a familial structure where we're hopefully caring and being cared for. Um, and then there's a moment where it's like, wait, there's a whole other way of seeing and understanding the world and it requires us to fight. And we go off and we fight. And some, for some of us, it's like literally, you know, we join the military, we go off and fight. But for others, I think organizing is, a, is, to me, it's a different kind of militaristic experience, right? It's like, I'm gonna go join this group of people who are fighting for the world to be different. And our tools are not violence. You know, our tools are ideas, our tools are building community, our tools are other things. But that when you're in that space, that getting politicized, getting radicalized, it feels like you are a warrior. That's what you're up to. And I really love, you know, when I look at that, that politicization in my own life of being like, if I want the world to be different, I'm going to have to fight for it, you know, and then I'll find my way. Now I'm like, okay, am I still a warrior if I spend my days writing and singing and listening for the cultural artifacts of the future, right? I have to believe that that's part of the battle, right? That's where the imagination battle happens in me as I'm like, my job is to hear the future. My job is to listen for the future, see it, and then try to bring it into the present in a way that is compelling. So that when people read what I'm writing, you know, it gives them a little, like, here's a portal through which you can see and experience it. And to me, always coming home is a portal. Um, and the cultural artifacts particularly is, um, I remember hearing, um, I believe it was Patty Byrne from Sins and Ballad talk about this, where she'd been doing organizing for a long time. And then she was like, and then she started doing theater because she was like, I could get up on a stage and do like a, a one woman show or we could do a play and I could transform people so much more quickly through the experience of what I could offer them culturally than I could sitting and giving this long lecture and trying to like build this whole case. There was something about being able to reach in with a story, reach in with a song where I could get in much more deeper and move much quicker than if I was trying to build all this analysis. And when I was doing, when I was taking emergent strategy out experimentally, we were doing, we did these events called immersions where community would come together for four days to see what it felt like to do emergent strategy in real life with each other. And we didn't provide a ton of structure to the whole thing. It was like, come together, revisit what emergent strategy is. And then they would move into small groups based on the principles. And then they were responsible for teaching us from the principles about some aspect of the community that needed support. So for instance, um, in New Orleans, there was a pattern of race, anti-Black racism. And the group that was holding stuff, stuff blew up in the group, but they ended up bringing a whole ritual into the space to help heal anti-Black racism and address how it's impacting the Black women community. In another space, it was like unprocessed grief has this community at each other's throats. And so we did a grief ritual and people got to care for each other and really name how much we've lost. In every single community, we have every group 
had the option to set up an analytical conversation or a debate and have us do that. None of them did. All of them moved towards ritual, towards creating song, towards creating processes of, of feeling and exploring and emoting. And I was like, we know that that's what we need. We don't give ourselves any room for it, but we know that it's actually culture that allows us to be our whole selves and feel. Um, and I recently saw a quote that was like, I think Donald Glover maybe saying that culture is how we talk about the things we remember from when we were gods. That's like, that puts us back in touch with our, our most divine selves, our fundamentally creative selves. And so I'm now thinking of myself that way, you know, that I'm like, there's something fundamentally creative in me. And when I let it loose, it inspires the fundamentally creative aspects of the people who come across it. They may or may not like my story, but even in not liking it, it's because some part of them is creating a different story that they might want. That's good news, yeah. right? And you had mentioned to me that you have um, something that you wrote, a song inspired yeah. from Always okay. Coming Home, as well as also a, a poem a poem <laughs> from Always Coming Home. So let's, yeah. um, let's touch on artifacts and ritual for a second. So great. So first I want to share a poem that Ursula Gwen wrote. So in Always Coming Home, she has tons. I mean, like really you have to pick up this book. It's one that you don't have to read linearly because there's the stories, you can read those, but then there's just, there's, she literally made cultural artifacts that are in the language of the catch that you can't read. There's no way to even understand them. And there's tons of it, right? So that's where I'm like, what was she channeling? Like, what was she experiencing in this? And then there's all these poems and songs. So here's one of the poems she wrote called This Stone. He went looking for a road that doesn't lead to death. He went looking for that road and found it. It was a stone road. He walked that road that doesn't lead to death. He walked on it a while before he stopped, having turned to stone. Now he stands there on that road that doesn't lead to death, not going anywhere. He can't dance. From his eyes, stones fall. The rainbow people pass him, crossing that road, long-legged, light-stepping, going from the four houses to the dancing in the five houses. They pick up his tears. This stone is a tear from his eye. This stone given me on the mountain by one who died before my birth. This stone this stone. So I love this. There's tons of content like that. And then I have this song that I'm going to sing to you that is inspired by this text. And I'll just sing it. Now you carry your soul across a thousand miles of stone. Each step will shadow your heart. Lost geese will carry your bones. It's a love song, all of that feeling. But you cannot sing alone. You'll live as the warriors live. And you're always coming home. You'll live as the warriors live. And you're always coming home. Wow, Adrian, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I'm now I have to tell you this. I have it's not largely known yet, so I'm breaking the news, but I got permission to write a musical. And so I'm working on my first like 
musical immersive experience right now, which is going to be put up for the first time in Oregon, not far oh, from wow. where Ursula Le Guin was based. Yeah. Um, the Open Society Foundation has a theater at Ashland, in Ashland out there. So um, yeah, in, in part really inspired by what I feel like the path that Le Guin was opening, which is like, there's a lot of ways to tell a story and there's a lot of ways to change the world and we should engage in all of them. Mm. Thank you. Um, before we leave always coming home, Mm -hmm. just to weave it a little more into those who walk away from Omelas and the dispossessed. Another thing Delaney highlights in this review is that the noun the cash use for gift is the same noun they use for wealth to be rich and to give are for them one word and their pivotal cultural concept is the hinge, a connecting principle that both holds things together and allows movement in relationship to each other. So thinking of a hinge, I'm going to pivot to something else you wanted to touch upon, which are the boundaries Ursula put around her writing life. Um, You said in your email that it feels like a practice more than part of the craft, but that it is deeply connected to the space needed to deepen craft. And I don't know what you're going to say about this, but the the things (laughs) that the topic makes me think of are Le Guin's interest in Lao Tzu and Taoism and the mystery of doing by not doing and the ways that she finds Taoism to be essentially subversive and radical and, and says, no wonder Taoists and anarchists make good friends. But I also think of your novel, Grievers, whose main character, Dune, is really good at setting her own boundaries of saying no, and how the premise for the disease in your book came from you yourself witnessing your community of activists in Detroit, that when they experienced a loss, when someone had been killed, you sensed the community wanted to stop, that they wanted to pause, but that they didn't know how to or in what manner to stop, so they just didn't. They kept going, and you wondered what would happen in a world where grief actually did stop you. Um, and I, I remember in your conversation with Kiesi Lehman, he was pointing out in his discussion with you that even though the syndrome in the book is one that people don't recover from, the book is really a lot about recovery and repair. And lastly, I just want to add that my interactions with your your assistant, Jess, in scheduling this interview, you've set up this system of self-care, and Jess is very clear about the parameters around your time and protecting them something that feels akin to ritual to me, a demarcation of a different sort of space, a space of not doing. Um, And I was very impressed by that as we navigated scheduling today. So I don't know how any of this relates, but talk to us about Le Guin's protection of her writing time um, in relation to you and your work. Well, one of the most... um, beautiful nose that I've ever received in my life um, was, I believe it was when we were doing Octavia's Peru, we were reaching out to different people to like give us a blurb or give us something. And we reached out to Ursula Le Guin and we got a response from her team, you know, somebody who handled it for her. Um, She's not accepting any 
contact at all this whole year because she's trying to get one more book out in her lifetime, basically. And um, I was like, you can just take a whole year and not be in contact with anyone because you're writing, you know, and up until that point, the way that I had done my writing work was like, I'm working a full-time job and I wake up really early in the morning to get some writing time in and I write during bathroom breaks. um, And I write, you know, when I, I set people up in small groups, you know, as a facilitator, and then I write while they're in the small group. And then once I'm ready to like do the book, you know, or do the project, then I give myself like a week, you know, to just pull it all together and like make it a thing. And so the idea of that level of abundant space to write, I was like, I can't even imagine what I would do with all of that. Like, what would that do to my craft? And in the Tao Te Ching, there's this idea of, you know, when the water is muddy, you have to let the mud settle, you know, so the water is clear. That's when you actually know what to do. And it felt like what she was offering was like, this is the way you let the mud settle. It's like, you have to actually take the time and block it off so that everything can settle and you can see what you actually have, what you're, what you're actually trying to say, which I think that shows up in her work so clearly, like even her um, resistance to people saying the Hainish cycle was the this or that it's the book, you know, she's like, it's not, it's just, it's just not, I'm setting a boundary around that. Like, that mud will not settle. These are all just pieces of content, but you cannot lump it all together into a storyline. I don't want you to do that. You will not do that. That kind of steadiness and clarity that she had about that feels like that's what comes when you actually harness your writing boundaries and really hold the line really nice and clearly. So it really inspired me and changed my life as a, a writer. And that now, and it's at all the time I'm more and more being like, I don't just want to set the boundary. I want people to know about these boundaries because I think it's really important for, I want people to know why. And I'm like, I'm not saying no because I don't want to do something and nothing is more important than my life's work. Like there's just nothing else that's more important than it. And so doing interviews, there's a secondary component of the life's work. It's another way that the work lives. But if I don't write, there's nothing to talk about. You know, it's like for me, the writing is the channel that I've been given responsibility for. And I also think of it as um, as a doula and as a healer. I'm often thinking about how do we how do we remove the obstacles and clear the way for life to move through this body, right? Whether it's for the child to move out and move into the world or for healing medicine to come in and be able to, you know, for, for actual intimacy to be able to move between people, right? Because trauma puts all these obstacles in the channels between us and others. So it's like, oh, can I clear the way? And I think about that as what I'm doing as a writer is I'm trying to use my words as the tool with which I lift the obstacles and move them out of the way. But I can't do that well if I'm full of obstacles, Mm. right? If I'm writing with no clarity (laughs) and I look back at my writings my early writing and I look back with a lot of tenderness you know I'm like yay you know like I was dedicated and I was writing and good stuff was coming through but I can still see how much there was uh, confusion and I'm sure in 20 years I'll look back at the writing I'm doing now with that same that's my hope 
is that the further I go along my writing process, the more precise I'll get, the more clear it will be. And the more that the, the spirit, the universe, that life that is trying to come through me can use me as a clear channel. And that only happens because of these boundaries. And in pleasure activism, I said that your no makes the way for your yes. And that feels like what boundaries are to me right now. It's just like, when I say no, or when I say not yet, when I say, you know, let's just wait because there's something I'm really attending to right now that I've got to say yes to, and it's taking up the space. And it also allows me to be much more present, you know, like even when I say yes, and even when something's on my calendar, I'm very in touch with, is this still, is this right? And if it's not, you know, like major life change has happened and actually I'm not in the place to do it then I let that be true. I'm like, I need to push that back. And because I'm not a doctor working in the emergency room, 90% of the things that are scheduled in my life actually can adjust or they can go on without me and it's actually fine. Yeah. And I, I love listening for that because I'm like, there's something I'm meant to do. Um, there's one more quote I want to throw in here just because when it comes to boundaries, I always try to include this one which I'm starting to call the Hemp Hill Method, <laughs> but it's from my friend, Prentice Hemp Hill, who is an embodiment teacher, who is also now my neighbor in North Carolina. And Prentice says, boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. And I love that as an idea of setting boundaries around our work, because especially as writers, so often we're having to like, fight for the space to write and and realize it's like we have to love our writer selves i want to woo my writer self i want to romance my writer self and that means i can't be loving everyone and everything and every other request more than i love that writer self so i'm trying to make that pivot now of like what does my writer self need that's first mm. and it's like every morning i don't schedule things before one o'clock generally and that morning time is my time to write. And um, when I have a book, you know, I just finished the sequel to Grievers. So it's like for, for a full month, that was what I was writing every morning. But then when I'm not working on a book project like that, I have a column I might write during that time. Or I'm working on this musical now that might happen during that time. I don't prescribe generally what will happen during that window. But I know that if I give myself the window, Often I'll wake up, you know, hours, like six o'clock in the morning. I'm just like, oh my God, I have six hours of time <laughs> to just be yeah. in my writer life. And I wish that feeling for everyone that once you know your purpose, that you put it first and you set boundaries around it so that you can really fully give yourself to it. And whatever else you're meant to do in your life, well, it'll come, you know, there'll be time, there's time. Um, but especially, you know, and Ursula Le Guin, the other thing I have to throw out there is she's such a badass. She did that with three kids and she managed boundaries of Charles with her, her husband such that she was able to write every night once the kids went to bed, you know, for periods of time. Like I'm, that blew me away. You know, I learned that like that's how she had had managed her writing life for that period when her kids were young and she was raising them and they were in the home. She didn't stop writing during that period. but. She had to adjust and set boundaries and she had to have a supportive partner who was like, I recognize your life purpose is as important as mine. And I'll set, I'll help you hold the boundaries you need for that work to happen. 
So, you know, it's, I, I want to say that because I think sometimes people are like, well, you don't have, you know, kids, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. I'm like, yeah, but I don't want anyone close to my life who doesn't understand the importance of what I'm doing um, and who can't honor the boundaries for that. And that, I think that is available to anyone who, who has gotten clear on purpose. Um, and then there's a boundary around chaos, right? For me, I'm just like, and this is where privilege comes in. But I'm like, I have gained and gathered for myself the privilege in my life to set boundaries between myself and chaos, right? So my life now feels very stable. Anything destabilizing, like that doesn't go here. Not, not, not when I'm 43. I was pulled down with that when I was 26, you know? But now I'm like, the stability is part of the, the practice of what I'm doing, the stillness which is, again, a Tao, is really like, uh, my friend Janine Benovage, who's also an incredible writer and is working on um, several books right now that I'm, I'm like, I love living in the world before these books are out where people don't know yet how, because I'm like, I know what they are. <laughs> but anyway, she says, there's human being without human doing. Like she says this to me all the time, because I like to do, and she's like, still. And when I get still, I can hear the song that I'm meant to hear. It, it would feel remiss of me not to spend a moment with Octa Octavia Butler before we end. Um, there's a religion or a, a spiritual path in her work with regards to God being herself change. Um, the book of living verse 19 goes, all successful life is adaptable, opportunistic, tenacious, interconnected, and fecund. Understand this, use it, shape God. And essentially, it feels like Octavia Butler is telling us to get into right relationship with change. Um, and when I was talking to Becky Chambers for the first episode of this series, one of the things we were talking about was Le Guin's radical imagination and how one big part of it was her public self-critique. Um, the way she changed and expanded and complicated both the worlds of Earth, Sea, and the Hainish cycle because she was beholden to the community who was reading and responding to it and was thinking deeply about the people who were reading it and the, the, um, the, not only the ways that opened people's minds, but the limits that... Um, of how it had been imagined so far. Yeah. Um, this this verse by Butler reminds me of that. And it also reminds me of Taoism or uh, the Tao Te Ching. And I guess I wondered yeah. if you felt any crossover between these, these two luminaries in this regard, with regards to change, also being the, the, this notion of self-change um, in, in the public as a writer, um, yeah. within the worlds that people both love and, and either do or don't see themselves within? I think one of the th reasons that both of them are like pillars of my, you know, science fiction mentor realm is because of the ways that they talk about change and connected with change and understood. It's like at a certain point you have to recognize like change is what is and it's what we have to contend with. And whatever else you build around that belief system, whatever you call that, if you want to have a deity who you 
give that to, that you're like, you are responsible for the changes in my life and I will pray to you and you will give me the changes that I want or you will keep the changes that I don't want or many deities that you're balancing in that process or, in, you know, whatever, however you choose to figure it out, what you're really talking about is like change. Like, how do I, how do I navigate the changes of life? And I feel like both of them wrote multiple texts that give us that guidance of at a certain point, you have to start to harness and decide for yourself how you're going to shape what changes are possible in your life. And I think that you could see both how they applied that to their own lives. Both of them were very self-realized women um, at a time when they could have easily not been. And a lot of people who maybe had good ideas or wanted to be writing were not able to harness that and make the same moves. But both of them are like, this is, I'm scooping everything out of the way. I'm carving it out. You know, Octavia Butler wrote at three o'clock in the morning. Ursula Le Guin wrote at nine o'clock at night. Like they figured it out. Right? They're like, I'm shaping yeah. this. And I always look for those connections between personal practice and then what what gets articulated on the page, what gets articulated in the story. It's the thing that interests me because I do think there's a autobiographical component um, to their writing. Um, even though it's wildly different characters, alien and otherwise, but there's something in there that's like, there's a curious person at the center of the story who is transforming and who is shaping the world around them. And you can, there's that thread through both of their work, um, which I hope, I hope and I feel committed to having in, in my work as well, okay? Um, and then I think there's, a, I think there's something that, really humbles you into your own life when you get in right relationship with change, that is a gift, which is you're going to die. You know, both of them wrote a lot about the ending of cycles. The cycles begin and then they end. That You love people and you lose them and you need rituals for those losses and you need to turn and face your own mortality because it changes and changes and changes. And part of the change is you're not being here, your non-existence and losing both of them, you know, living in a world now with both of them physically not here, but still so present, you know, there, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of them and that I don't refer to their work or dance with their work or refer other people to, to dive into the rivers of their thinking. And I love being an embodiment of their lineages coming together and knowing I'm not the only one, that there are a lot of people who are like co-shaped by both of them. Um, all of that to me feels really beautiful. That There's something about getting in relationship with the, thing, the fact that like things will end and you will end and everyone you love will end. And these structures that seem impossible to change as, you know, when talked about capitalism, you know, these things will change. They will absolutely change. And I feel like Octavia Butler foresaw that in so many of her texts that she was just like, just she also, you know, Lilith Brood or what's called the Xenogenesis series, that's her always coming home, right? That's her far future earth story, right? Where it's like humans will find ways to continue. What is it to be a human? What matters about being a human? Like that's what we should be asking ourselves and trying to answer all the time. What matters about being a human being? What matters about our short lives that we take so seriously, right? And that we hold with such reverence. Um, 
I think that they shared that. And when I was in the papers, when I was in Le Guin's papers, you know, I saw all of her correspondence with all these other writers. I was really looking for correspondence with Butler. And there's stuff where she references Butler. She talked about Butler to Philip Dick. She talked about Butler to Joy Lesson. But there's not, you know, there's not actually like them just having this prodigious exchange that I would imagine that they could have had. And it seemed like they were kind of ships in the night, you know, in a way. Um, and I'm always interested in that too, is I'm just sort of like, I don't understand how the two of you were in the world at the same time writing what you were writing and that you weren't friends, <laughs> that you weren't like regularly talking to each other. And you were in the same part of the world, you know, like you were both right there in, in the, um, you know, Seattle, Oregon, Oregon, Washington state area, right? I'm like, y'all yeah. could have just been driving back and forth, like in my mind, <laughs> that fantastic relationship that they have. But I also think that that's a, that is also a testament to their boundaries. Like both of them are very much like I'm in my lane and I am doing what I've come to do. And I'm not necessarily running around trying to create a lot of new connections around all of it. I respect, there was a mutual respect between them, but there was also that spaciousness. And there's something, you know, for me that's like, oh, that's okay. Like, there's a lot of people in the world who are up to similar things as I am, and I won't be able to be in direct relationship with all of them. Um, but I think we can still change the, the frequency at which this world's changing. And I think that they, together, they change the frequency of this generation, of, especially of those of us working in, in explicit social change work. Um, and I look around now, as opposed to 10 years ago, I look around now at how many people are coherent about the power of imagination in our work and not settling for false solutions, but actually imagining what we want and getting in right relationship to change and seeing what's happening, not from the stance of a victim, but the stance of a shaper. Um, all of that feels really important to me, you know, and I, I'm really grateful that we live in the era of those icons. Well, just days after Ursula died in 2018, you put out a short extra episode of your podcast, How to Survive the End of the World, where you expressed your grief at the news and, and then read a letter that can also be found online that you wrote to Ursula. And we're going to go out with this. But first, I just wanted to say thank you for being on Crafting with Ursula today, Adrian. Thank you so much, David. This has been, I've been looking so forward to just getting to be in the deep waters of this conversation with yeah. you and I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Me too. So this is from um, January 2018 episode of How to Survive the End of the World. So a relationship with a beloved writer can be a very selfish place. You're alone with them building an understanding of the world through their eyes and some intimate pairing of imaginations. They paint the world, but all of it happens inside you. I tried to write something more epic and universal, and I trust that that will come. But first, I wanted to write a letter to her that was about how she shaped me. So here's the letter that emerged. Dear Ursula, great teacher, great spirit, I've been crying since I got the news of your passing and also feeling very alive. I got to live at the same time as you and I get the honor of grieving you. 
There are thoughts and ideas you wrote down that became beliefs for my whole life, marking posts on the journey of freeing myself. There are questions you asked that changed the way I could think. Many of us don't get to experience grandparents who can accept us whole. For me, you were one of the adults who stepped into that yawning space who joined the composite of my dream elder. You let me know I may be in the wrong universe, but I am not wrong. I am not impossible. You not only matched and fed my queer, unorthodox mind, but pushed me further. On relationships and sex alone, you had me consider, what about a four-way marriage? What about gender as a responsive, switchy sexual state that was otherwise non-existent? What about instead of a period, you just had a monthly sexual overdrive and a special place to go orgy for that time? I... I'm a lucky one. I got to tell you to your face that you were everything and you were gracious about it. I'm still creating a project about your work. In researching it, I became fascinated by you, your abundant correspondence, your art and poetry connected to the worlds you created, your fierce letters to local editors about tree removals, (laughs) your loves and flirtations. I still wanna read everything. It feels impossible in the best way. Writers cast themselves out to the world with words so that now you feel fully dispersed, more than gone. You were so generous with your gifts and you were rare, both prolific and genius. So many genius words. The worlds you wrote... (laughs) So emotional, I'm trying so hard to pull this off. The world's... You wrote, increased my trust that white people could imagine something beyond their own supremacy and that capitalism could be out-imagined like monarchy. And even when I did not seek you, you were there. When I learned to meditate, you'd left me a framework. When I fell in love with the Tao, I could turn to your translation. When I wanted amazing fiction for all my nibblings, you had a series on flying cats. When I needed to stand up for something, feeling alone in my dignity, you told me about the ones who walk away from a utopia dependent on someone else's suffering. When I lost hope in this world, you offered me a plethora of fully formed universes to learn from. You even gave me multiple options for moving between universes, both distant and parallel. When some aspect of humanity felt far beyond my comprehension or compassion. I found books you had written 20 years before that not only opened my heart, opened the possible in me, but generated desire for that specific difference. When I wondered if imagination could be necessary for revolution and transformation, you said yes. You said our dreams and visions matter. They are the way we make oppression temporary. 88 years, I wanted more. You are that kind of human. Even as I sit in my grief for you, you guide me. You remind me that you are not absent, but complete. True journey is return. Love, A and B. I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine some real 
grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom. Poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, <laughs> Me too. Thank you, David. Thank you, Adrian. It's been such a pleasure to spend the two hours with you today. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Adrian Marie Brown's work can be found at adrianmariebrown.net. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener-supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin herself, to bonus audio beyond the main conversations from everyone from Ted Chang to N.K. Jemison, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more and check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio that we use in the intro of Ursula from Curry's documentary, Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. I'd like to thank the National Book Foundation for allowing us to use a clip of her famous viral speech that she gave for the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters that we end the program with. I'd like to thank William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner, Tin House's Jacob Valla for the graphic design, Becky Kramer for publicity, and Theo Downs Le Guin for his guidance, his insight, his encouragement, as well as his aid in building out a Le Guin resource library in my home to make these conversations possible. Finally, the music you hear, called River Song, and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Keshe. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. Mm-hmm.